Hey everyone, you're listening to the Arts Fuse Presents The Short Fuse. I'm your host, Deanna Costa, here to bring you into the world of our online arts criticism magazine. Today's episode will feature Steve Provisor, fellow Fuse contributor. He and I discussed two recent reviews that he did for the Fuse. One would be the uh, film The Trial of the Chicago 7, and the other is a review of the book Sitting In. I feel like I learned a lot of history in this particular one, um, but I haven't seen the film itself, so I don't yeah. know if you'd like to speak about it kind of in a general way. Sure. Well, I approached it from a, a couple of different perspectives. I was around when it all happened. Right. And uh, was subject to, you know, the possibilities of being sent to Vietnam myself to fight. So I was clearly invested in um, all of the political activity that was going on at that time. Absolutely. Late 60s. And um, I also wanted to look at it through the lens of how polarized the country was then versus how polarized it is at this point. (laughs) Sorry, my cat's popping in. (laughs) So, The, uh, the question of polarization is not easy really to answer. I will say this, that before I saw the movie and was reminded about how, you know, how awful some of those people were, yeah. I was, you know, very certain that this era of polarization and this era of so-called leadership was not as bad as it was then. Now, I, that, you know, seeing the movie and reminding me of all of those things kind of shifted me a little bit. Mm. I still believe that this bunch of, you know, scumbags that we happen to have now is really just, it incurs a level of hatred in me that (laughs) even though my life was much more endangered by the actions of people like, you know, Nixon and, uh, all of his, you know, henchmen, Ehrlichman, Haldeman, and so on. Right. Even though my life was more threatened directly by them, I think that they actually had a little bit more sense of the role that they were supposed to play. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know, you know, how much you know about that era or... Yeah, I... I studied um, American history in my undergrad years, and I kind of, I, I didn't mean to, but I ended up focusing a lot on political American history, and particularly from the presidential lens. So I definitely learned a lot about Nixon and, and Reagan and all of them that I, I feel my public education <laughs> kind of failed me a lot on. <laughs> but I, I know what you mean for sure. They, they definitely had a sense of um, the presidency that I think has been very much lost, even if they they were doing, um, I can't remember exactly what they referred to it as, I think Nixon was like the, the imperial president or something like that. He was like 
trying to have an absolute power kind of thing. But I do, I do agree with you that this, the, the climate we're in now is more um, overarching in a way. But I, I wonder how you feel about also, um, I guess, as someone that was at the age that I'm, I'm gathering I must be at now during the Vietnam era. No, I wasn't, no, I wasn't that old. I was in my teens. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, as soon as you turned 18, you were, you were subject to the draft, so. Right, yeah. But being um, a young person at that time, I wonder if it's interesting for you now because there's, I guess, like a, a generational divide that's kind of been happening that you must have also experienced being a young person in the yeah. 60s and 70s. And I yeah. wonder what you think about all of that in relation to the political divides that we have yeah. now. You know? Well, I actually have a daughter that's probably your age. So, you know, obviously I'm, I'm You're probably really aware of, of it. <laughs> Well, some things I think are probably very similar and some things are very different. At that point, the country was really at the beginning. Well, it was not at the beginning of the civil rights struggle. You know, it, it had reached a much more intense point than it had in the, in the 50s and early 60s. Right. And so we were, you know, that had moved along, but the struggle for women's rights and gay rights really was just beginning to become a widespread uh, popular movement. And, um, you know, since that point, those things have really changed. Yeah. And the things that my daughter faces and gay people face, it's not the same thing as it was at that point. Um, you know, people were just basically closeted unless they were you know very brave people or people you know willing to undertake the kind of confrontations that they were subject to constantly right or if you're a woman you know all of the issues around that so while there's similarities there are also differences another similarity actually that people might not be aware of is at that time we were hyper conscious of what was happening to the planet Mm. And we were very paranoid right. about the continued existence of the planet, right. partly because of ego, waste, trash, abominations, partly because of population, massive population increases, and partly because we still had the residue of the Cold War and felt like, you know, the big one could still be dropped. Right, so, right. We still had that vision of possible planetary annihilation. Right, the silent spring era and all of yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. So the idea that, you know, you would live past a certain age at that point was very iffy. You know, the idea, of course, you've heard the expression, don't trust anybody over 30. <laughs> well, at that point, that was also, we didn't necessarily expect to live past 30. Right, right, I which is really definitely very relevant right now in the middle of a pandemic and then also yeah. people that face all sorts of strife as if they're you know if they're a person of color like you said women too yeah i i definitely know a lot of people my age that feel like if we make it to 30 we'll be shocked <laughs> yeah. so that yeah. yeah 
that is very universal and i'm i'm sure that that um kind of comes back to the film in a sense too because i think that like you had said the the angles that you were taking in this article there's um i got a kind of like a sense of looking back at your youth through this film and and that time and um i also thought the people who commented were very right. specific right. about how what they were doing when it all came down. And actually, one person was in the courtroom who sent a comment. And so, you know, when I talked about what had been changed historically in the film, some of it very significant, he was particularly upset. It's always great uh, as a writer when you see someone commenting on your piece and you can engage in that discussion and everything. But yeah. I saw um, people had mentioned the, like the one person described disturbing distortions. So I wanted to know what you thought about the parts that weren't maybe quite uh, historically accurate. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's part of what I had to evaluate in the review. Right. Were those changes significant enough for me to feel like the, the film had failed, you know? Right. And ultimately, I thought that there was a kind of a balance because, um, as I say, I wanted the history to be accurate as much as possible. At the same time, I wanted people who were not around then to feel the emotional weight of what was going on. Now, right. a movie is necessarily going to try to encapsulate what in this case is months and months of, of activity. The court went on for months and, and years Right. the trial. So um, it was up to them to try to make it, you know, bite-sized and consumable. Now, you know, the question is, what did they do to make that happen? In some cases, I think that they did a good job. And in other cases, it's too bad that they mischaracterized people's actions. And, you know, David Dellinger was, you know, a staunch pacifist. Right. And they had him beating somebody up in the courtroom. You know. <laughs> <laughs> the, worst, the worst thing was really that um, there was a point at which one of the Chicago Seven had begun to read the names in the courtroom of people who had been killed in Vietnam. Now, in, in actuality, he did that when the judge was out of the courtroom. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as the judge came back in the courtroom, he was stopped and he was uh, fined for contempt of court. Right. In the movie, it's the kind of ultimate sort of catharsis at the end of the movie. Right, the big stand. Everybody's yeah. in the courtroom and he starts to read in it and the gavel comes down and everybody <laughs> is, you know, going. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that was just so unnecessary. That yeah. just didn't need to happen. And as, a, as a, um, a viewer, did you feel like it was kind of over the top just in general? Oh, like his, history aside, it was just too much. No, no, I mean, no, because how do you convey how, how absolutely uh, dramatic and tragic the attack of the police was in right. Chicago? I mean, it was just, when you said, you know, the things that you don't get in history books, you know, this reoccurs in American history. Absolutely. this kind of thing. The yeah. police, you know, Calvin Coolidge sending in the cops to break strikes and you know, the Haymarket riots and, and all of this happens, but it seems to be forgotten and 
to bring it back an instant, really recent egregious instance of it. It's, you have to pretty much, you know, make it, you have to bring the blood close up on the screen and you have to see very violent events. So I think that was appropriate. Didn't have any issues with that. It was some of the other aspects that, you know, they had to create climaxes that didn't play out that way. Right, yeah. Things that happen over the course of months, you know, they tried to sort of concentrate it to brief moments of great, you know, drama and catharsis. And that's not the way it really happened. I mean, uh, Bobby C being handcuffed and hogtied was an unbelievable event. And they, they did a, you know, basically a good job in doing that. Um, the whole question of those kind of events happening in the courtroom reminded me of the fact that cameras are still not allowed in courtrooms. They certainly were not right. allowed. That. It's been a more, it's right. been brought up and it's as a possibility more often. But during those days, all you had was an artist's sketch in charcoal or in pastel. Right. And can you, you know, you, you, do, you are not going to get the impact. I mean, if there were cameras in that courtroom or you know, still cameras or video cameras, you know, it, it would have had a much greater impact on the public than it did. Absolutely. And it kind yeah. of, it makes you think about how um, that, that I guess does tie into a lot of conversations about Vietnam and the televisation of, of the mm-hmm. war and all of that. Mm-hmm. And also mm-hmm. then going down on the road into the eighties and nineties when court TVs became a thing and <laughs> you had like the OJ Simpson trial televised and all of that. So yeah. it's, it's interesting, I guess there's, there's so many ways I feel like you could look at this one um, situation in history and pull so much relevance out of it which I guess must be why they decided to make this now, but. Well, it took them apparently from inception to completion. It took them 15 years to get it Really? Wow. That's incredible. Clearly, you know, the big money was not there to undertake this. It was, and and the people involved in this process, well, you know, they had built up a reputation, which is extremely solid which i'm sure was ultimately the reason that they were able to get the money together to do for that long yeah and and the the star power there were some fairly i mean i would say the performances were basically good sasha baron cohen was not great i saw that you you weren't um too happy with his worcester accent right (laughs) didn't quite the subtleties of the worcester accent (laughs) were not mastered watch it Make up your own mind, you know. Basically, I thought it did a good job of balancing with the exception of some of the things that I mentioned. Our first musical guest of the evening is Ryan Lee Crosby, a singer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist whose sound combines American folk, blues, and Northern Indian raga. He's been nominated for two Boston Music Awards, as well as composed and performed the film score for the award-winning documentary, Racing the Res 2012. Crosby performs on both traditional and modern instruments, a gesture that speaks to his goals for his music overall. His meditative creative process 
quote, seeks to deepen his understanding of sound from technical, cultural, and spiritual perspectives. Before and hopefully after the pandemic, Crosby annually toured Europe and select U.S. regions. He currently lives in Medford, Massachusetts and performs regularly in the greater Boston area. Ryan, go ahead and take it away. <laughs> hey everybody, my name is Ryan Lee Crosby and I'm so glad to be with you. This first one is called Slow Down and it was uh, inspired by uh, my friend and mentor, uh, Mr. Jimmy Duck Holmes in Bentonia, Mississippi. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Right. The name of the book is Sitting In. Yeah. Sitting In is an expression, you know, literally when it's somebody else's gig and you go up and sit in, play your instrument. So um, there are a couple, this book has a couple of theses. Theses. Uh, the most important, the largest one is that jazz and jazz clubs represent uh, a forward, a much more progressive model of racial comity uh, and integration than the rest of the culture does. And that, you know, he, he tries to show this through various means. When, you know, the book is largely, it's a picture book, you know, it's ephemera from nightclubs the largest, the preponderance of the ephemera is from New York City. Um, there are over a hundred pages and scores of clubs from there. It, it's somewhat deceptive because he, he he divides the book into East Coast, West Coast, you know, mm -hmm. Central. And the fact is he has almost nothing from any other part of the country <laughs> except New York City. It's an interesting way to categorize it then, if, the, yeah, if it's, not, it's heavy. Not, not appropriate, huh. you know, it's somewhat deceitful, I think. Right. Uh, the, the author does get back to me about that. He, he sends a comment in about Oh, that. really? Anyway, yeah. Um, so at the, the beginning of each section, he tells a little bit about the jazz history of the particular place, but not to have anything from Philadelphia. Philadelphia was a, a major, major producer of jazz musicians, a mm -hmm. major scene, to have three places from Detroit, another major, you know, it's, it's just, uh, it's not properly representative. I think he got the impetus to, to play up the idea of the progressive aspect of racial relations mm. because of an interview he'd had with Quincy Jones. Everybody knows who Quincy Jones is. Right, right. But people may not know that Quincy Jones was initially a jazz trumpet player. He played with Lionel Hampton's band. And, you know, he saw that maybe trumpet playing wasn't really the best direction for him because he was in the section with some of the best trumpet <laughs> players in the world. Right. So he, you know, he became a writer and an arranger and became very famous because of that. Anyway, he talks very glowingly about the role that jazz had in terms of its progressive position in the culture and the clubs and so on. He also interviews Sonny Rollins, uh, the saxophone player who is somewhat less uh, in, in, yes, he thinks that particular people involved in the scene should be given more credit for what they did in terms of racial mixing. Right. And, um, and another musician, but, he also had a woman who was an arts, uh, a fashion writer for the uh, Washington Post. And the reason that he had her there is because he includes many, many pictures of audience members that were sort of formally taken by photographers and the nightclubs who hired them to take pictures of the clientele. Hmm. And then the clients, at the end of the evening, they could buy the picture for a buck or two to help them, you know, remember their night out on right, the Right, right. So 
these pictures are relatively unusual in, in books of this kind. Um, and, but they, they're basically sort of formal pictures and they're, they're kind of repetitive. You see very much the same thing in a lot of the pictures. And he wanted to use it as another sort of platform to talk about the racial mixing. Right. And she will not, she doesn't see it that way. She's not from the jazz world. So she didn't know really what she was supposed to say. Right. She, you know, her comments are very, they, they hold him, you know, much more down to earth about the reality oh, of the experience of black people in these nightclubs. That, you know, mythologizing is probably not the right thing to do about this. Right. Do you and think that, like, that him including that interview kind of evened it out a little bit? Or do you think it was still a little... No, the, well, the, the, the author's perspective runs through the whole book. Right. You know? So that, that's his perspective. And I'm just saying, my perspective is much more adopted by her point of view which right. is much more ambivalent about it. Now look, you know, because I think about this and I've written about it a lot. The fact is jazz has represented a, a paradigm of racial mixing. Right. As far back as the 20s, musicians were mixing racially. They were not doing it on stages. They were doing it in jam sessions and they were recording mixed groups as early as the late 20s. Hmm. They, you know, mixed groups did not appear on stages until the mid thirties. So anyway, but this, ra this racial mixing that jazz musicians did was basically supported by the fact that these people were all part of a group that was a meritocracy that was right. earned as a result of the fact that they were able to play this music. Right. They knew a body of songs Anybody who knew them and could improvise was welcome to mix. And, and that was the basis, really, of why people could mix so well. So let's not take that paradigm and try to put it on what's happening in jazz clubs. Right. Because they were, they were largely segregated even into the 50s. You know, and we know that you know, Las Vegas was segregated into the 60s. You know. I mean, right. the history of integration in nightclubs is really not a happy one in the same way that the history of mixing in film is not a happy one. Right, right. Or, or nearly anything else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. But, you know, the fact that, you know, jazz is slightly different insofar as the, the, the performers themselves were... Mm -hmm were mixing much more freely than the rest of the culture was. I was happy to be able to, uh, you know, talk a little bit more about uh, some of the, re I was glad that he mentioned some of the reasons behind the change in the music. You know, in the 40s, jazz changed pretty dramatically from a music that was a dance-oriented music to a music that was much more a listening. Right. Music. Bebop arose in the 40s, and there was a, a large racial component to that, and there was also an economic component to it. In New York City, which is the center of this music, laws were passed, cabaret laws, 
that impose taxes on clubs for having um, music that would allow dancing, that would probably That's so interesting, wow. You were taxed for dancing, essentially. Wow. And uh, the way to make money was to have more tables and no more dancing space. So right. it, it was assumed that you went to a nightclub, it be, began to be much more that you sat down and listened. So that would kind of tie into the fashion, I'm sure, as well, and those photos of the people sitting and in, in their, like, kind of posed at the tables. And, yep, right. that's right. There are no people dancing in these, right. these photos. They're, you know, yeah, that's completely appropriate. Huh. Yeah. That's very, it is, it sounds like it brings up a lot of um, kind of like fascinating historical points, but then maybe misses the mark a little bit about the undertones that were happening at the time. Right. I mean, it talks about the tax element and it, attacks, it talks about what were called racial covenants, hmm. which were basically sometimes written, but often unwritten sort of rules that prohibited black people in, in developments. Right. Which meant that they basically were consigned to certain neighborhoods. And that was not done away with until the practice was banned by the Supreme Court in 1948. Um, so th those kind of changes affected the presence of music in a given community. On the upside, you would say that, well, maybe that meant that there were some more local activity, more, more clubs that were strongly connected to the neighborhood. And that, that was true to some degree. And to some degree when that shifted, it didn't necessarily play out well for the survival of clubs. And something else this book does point out very appropriately is how evanescent the lifespan of a jazz club is. Right. You know, right. we see now we see places closing really in large amounts because of the pandemic. Right. Um, but, and we had, you know, we mourn the loss of places as they happen. Like, you know, we mourn the loss of Riles, you know, right. you know, and all, all of the places that have closed. But the fact is, you know, historically, it's a very tough business to keep going. These things generally do not last that long. So it was appropriate and, and good for that book to show us that some of what the some what some of the buildings were before they became jazz clubs. In some cases, they were you know um, they were catering houses. Hmm. Or, or automobile showrooms, you know. That is interesting to consider how that would affect the space when they then converted it. Right. And then they either became something else completely or they changed their musical format. In a lot of cases, jazz clubs became discos huh. or places for rock and roll to happen. That, that, this, is, this is continuing to happen. Well, that's the short of it for this episode. Be on the lookout in a couple weeks for our interview with another Fuse contributor, Merle Guerra. You can also keep the conversation with us going on social media at the Short Fuse Pod or email us at the Short Fuse Podcast at gmail.com.
If you really love us, leave a nice review or drop some coin over to our Patreon, which will be updated again shortly. Thanks, guys. See you soon.